Hello again, welcome to episode 8 of Smart Casual. My guest this week is comedian Dane Baptiste. Dane and I had a fascinating conversation that touched on a number of subjects, including the parallels between instigating a romantic relationship and one with a comedy audience, and Dane's perspective of the double-edged sword that is social media. We also talked about the issue of race in comedy and the changing relationship between the so-called urban circuit and the mainstream circuit. It was great getting to know Dane and hearing his opinions on all this and a whole lot more. So without further ado, here it is, Smart Casual, with me, Jeff Innocent and Dane Baptiste. Welcome, Dane Baptiste, to the Smart Casual studio. Thank you very much for coming in. And the first thing I'd like to ask you is why did you want to go and do business studies <laughs> at any university, let alone Bradford University? Uh, a, was it, was it an entrepreneurial idea? Did you think that's where you were going to go? I think subconsciously that was the thing, that it was like I had no real fixed idea about what I wanted to do in terms of higher education. The, the Going into higher education was just the... Uh, you know, the trajectory that was expected of me as a son of immigrants and, uh, yeah, is a natural... Well, that clear, entrepreneurial clearly. path is quite yeah. a, a common path, isn't it? Well, for me, for me, but for my parents, it was more of having a higher education and being better disposed to be able to apply for jobs and stuff. So of they, course. And, and they could only guide me so much as the experience they had because they never went to university themselves. So they were kind of like, you need to go to uni to get a degree because that puts you in better stead for a job. But couldn't necessarily tell me what they wanted me to do. I guess they would have had the same wishes as most parents on their kids to go into like legal, clerical, medicine, of maybe course. accounting. And I, I didn't really feel like that's where I, I had an interest in like biology and I was interested in medicine. But again, it was like the resources and the awareness to go to medical school and stuff I didn't really have. So business studies, business management for me was like, whatever you choose, at least you have the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And I think there was just a very, very, in the quantum of solace in my mind this very dark recess like right in the nucleus of my mind it was like i want to be a creative but i am aware that that is a part that is fraught with like failure and difficult university mm -hmm. so if worse comes to worse you have this degree where you have a rudimentary understanding of business and you can always go and do this and then if you do become successful in business the other pitfall of being successful in the creative industry is being fucked over That's by the industry. very rational. So also Dane. being aware of it, yeah. So, well, is it the, yeah, the thing is, I guess you, you try, or you, people always try to find some kind of rationality or some procrastination before you chase something creative because you don't really know where to go or where to start. And I wasn't aware of like how open mic worked I, and, you know, how Were you performing works. at that time when you went to um, university or were you funny then? Or? I said I was funny, but I wasn't formally performing. Like the thing with me, comedy has always just been, I guess, it became a natural part of my being. So I had no ideas fixed on being a professional comic or being a professional creative. It was just like, I like doing jokes. I like doing skits. I like making my friends laugh. Okay. Comedy's always Which good. Which is a great starting point, I think, for yeah. all comedians having funny bones. So you're aware that you were a funny person and you used humour in your everyday life as a natural thing. Yeah. As I did, actually. Dave. Yeah, I think it's, I it's a normal coping strategy. I think, I think mm -hmm. you know, as most people, even most uh, of the laity will always rationalise things by saying, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So I think we all use comedy <laughs> to process our uh, our experience and our reality so you know coming of age in southeast london as a long adolescent sure. like i didn't come from a household which would have which wasn't was unstable would have justified me getting involved in any trouble really but when i was kind of in that environment rather than you know taking a position of pretending that i'm someone i wasn't like mm -hmm. i'd be the funny guy or even again speaking to women i think 
men massively struggle with endearing themselves to women or rapport building. For me, I grew up with loads of women. And again, it was like comedy always came in mm-hmm. handy there as well. So, it was a, But I guess the main thing I noticed was not so much about me being funny or like pratfalling or doing any kind of slapstick stuff. It was more when I used to complain or rant that people would laugh. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was always thought I was like a nitpicker and always someone that was very moany. But when I tried to like, you know, relay an anecdote to my friend about something that pissed me off or something happened, like people would kind of laugh at the absurdity or how I'd embellish mm-hmm. the story. So that's kind of where I learned where my and is that a style from. that you've maintained, would you say? That's become part of the character of your comedy? I think to an extent, yeah. I, I think it's I, I think I always try to, as a part of my uh I guess aesthetic, is to play the line close but not actually step onto the soapbox and try to give people kind of a sense of guidance, but always kind of I suppose either diffuse that grenade with laughter or try to kind of undercut it because before I started doing stand-up in earnest, a large part of my, I guess, self-discovery as an artist was trying to have a honest and critical and independent perception of the world. Because I think most of us, our perception is shaped largely by suggestion based on whether it's media, uh, you know, cultural influences and like our immediate social environment can really shape how you think about of things. Of course, yeah. And, I yeah. Was, and, and when I began to do the research about comedians I looked up to, what was the commonality was everyone kind of values the ability to think outside the box and not think like anybody else is and look at something objectively as an observational comedian so look at things objectively and always try to I guess I try to always try and perceive things along the lines of my consciousness rather than what my five senses are mm-hmm. so in the same way that like I always find as the way I try to explain to people is that when you dream you don't really dream as a black person or a white person or a man or a woman or a straight or, or a gay person you only really recover these labels or these identities when you wake up again. Mm-hmm. So I always try to approach comedy in the same way where I'm perceiving everything as a consciousness because I feel like if I apply on everything from my consciousness rather than the superficial uh, identity I have, that it's easy for anyone to understand it and anyone can anyone can relate so to it. So are you saying that there's an objective consciousness? I think so, yeah. I think if you entertain outside it. Outside of the influence of ideology and yeah, hegemony. I, yeah, I think I think for most of us we're we're definitely like that as people. I think most human beings have an awareness of what their true inclinations or instincts are. And then unfortunately the trajectory of human life is in many ways kind of suppressing Mm -hmm. these things and trying to keep it moving. It's why people say like the creative is a child that survived because like, I feel no one really has sights set on being a project manager or being like, you know, a recruitment consultant or any of these ambivalent kind of job titles. So it all for me it was more of an existential thing where I got to a point where I'm like I feel like the world's lying to me just as I'm mm-hmm. getting close to turning 30 I think the world's lying to me I think the world's lying to all of us mm-hmm. and I want to find out what the truth is and that was so funnily enough like now so you know nowadays everyone talks about like you know David Icke and secret secret societies mm-hmm. and you know government intrigue like this is stuff I kind of done at the beginning of my career so I spent before I started doing comedy I wanted to basically work out what makes the human mind tick and particularly in the west where i'm based so i went and watched david Icke and read books and did the research on secret societies and you know very early paid attention to like youtube influencers and people's narratives and stuff like that not just because i'm like i believe this stuff but it's like obviously people believe this and rather than me just dismiss them as being stupid it's like obviously there's enough human beings here that believe in this stuff and obviously people are seeking truth so it's like just it was just i i an interesting sociological study to work of out course. how people's minds work. And, and then like when you take that into account with a business degree, like that's also a social science because all businesses is making people buy stuff they don't really need. Mm-hmm. 
And there is a large amount of psychology that goes into that. Like, you know, you go to university, you'll study, like, you'll study Freud and you'll study, like, you know, occupational psychology and, like, classic psychology models because they want to work out how the human mind works mm-hmm. to make it do stuff that they want it to do. So, again, I was following that line just about me being like, I don't want to go on stage and talk about the world as I see it before I have an understanding of it or I, you know, I, th- I just think to be an entertainer, you kind of have to entertain everything. Mm-hmm. There's, there shouldn't be any idea or any narrative I hear from another human being. I'm like, that's that's just stupid. But even, or if I do think it's stupid, it's like I, there's a reason why they think that way. Yes. And I think the more you can kind of understand people, the much easier it is. So you were already prepared for the COVID conspiracies then because you had already had some, some yeah, absolutely. experience with absolutely, the yeah. process in which these, these people think. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, just, and, and just understanding just how the human mind works. I think, as I said, like... So much of our lives is about us repressing what we are, our, what our, our actual true urges, and a large part of it as well is that we are all reared in a world which is very Freudian, of course. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we and we have that as well. We we have like you know our our id, and that kind of is our more of our carnal desire, more basic mm-hmm. desires, and we have our ego, which is kind of between our carnal desires and our super ego, which is our aspiration to be better and higher beings, and. So for me, I guess, yeah, it's trying to contextualize all of kind of human interaction along those lines as well. So with business studies, you would have learned about these processes and Freud. It's Freud's nephew, I think, that became the instigator of yeah, um, using Edward Freudian Bernays, yeah, ideas. Yeah, Edward Bernays. And like kind getting of like, women to smoke cigarettes, yeah, etc. Exactly. That's yeah, amazing that stuff. stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, yeah, it is. But, but it's, it's it, and it's the thing is like, you think about it and we don't really give it any thought again as to why we say that kind of mm. thing. And it, And it was... And obviously, we work in an oratory medium. So even when we say stuff like, you know, if you don't laugh, you'll cry, or the good die young, I'd be like, okay, well, these are affirmations that we recite in society all the time. But why do we say that? Like, why the fuck did a good die young? That doesn't sound like it makes sense to me. Like, if you're a good person, you shouldn't be dying earlier than. And if that's the case, then aren't we? Shouldn't we scrutinize the people that are fucking old and making loads of money? And then, and then it's like, so then I start thinking, okay. If you're a bad kid at Christmas time, then Father Christmas gives you a lump of coal. But aren't the people that control the world in control of like f- fossil mm-hmm. fuels? And so then it means that we're rewarding sure. old people yeah, by giving yeah. them more coal because that's how they control the world through their, you know, through actually controlling like industries like fossil fuels. So I just like question. And yeah, the more I questioned, the more I wanted but, to learn. But that's an interesting thing you've taken. Would I be right in thinking that most people that do business studies don't come out of it? With a critical eye on society, yeah, and they the don't. System. Yeah, I don't think they do. Yeah, I think it's more most people. Of someone who's done humanities, isn't it? Yeah, uh, well, uh, exactly. And I and I think. So did you struggle while you were there then? Most because did, what they're really doing, did. they're not yeah. saying for you to question this stuff. They're saying you need to know this stuff in order to be a successful, successful business person, don't Ex- they? Yeah, exactly. Whereas what you're doing actually is questioning and challenging those those things. So did you struggle when you were there? Were you oh, yeah, I, de- you were I definitely there? struggle. I definitely <laughs> struggled. But <laughs> I mean, the main reason being that like. I was under the the uh, misconception if you study hard and get a good job or you you can you can get a good job, but you know, at the same time, it's like I forgot years ago when my mum would say like it's not what you know, it's who you know, and so a lot of people that I saw prosper in business after graduating it wasn't because they got like a great internship and that led to more work. It would be either if they got a job, it comes from like a legacy of having competence. Where I'm an accountant, my dad's an accountant, my brother's an accountant, so it's the natural family business, or you know. My dad was a civil engineer. He told me to go to this school and start a civil engineering so I can get a job at this company and he can refer me to that. And so I had to become aware of that, that nepotism still kind of rules the day with um, business. And then for me, I remember when it clicked as I was doing a marketing module and that's, and then we were talking about theory of retail therapy. And they were like, you know, it's been proven that if you buy stuff, it makes you feel better. And I was like, that can't make any fucking sense. I'm a student. Like my mm-hmm. biggest worry is money. So 
in no way can it be therapeutic if I'm stressed because I can't <laughs> afford to buy my dinner this week or I can't afford my food this week. I go and buy like a T-shirt. doesn't make any fucking sense. So, so already I was like, that don't really make any sense. And again, further reading, I guess I worked out that, uh, yeah, just how schooling works. How long after you finished your degree did you start doing stand-up comedy? What's the relationship between doing that degree, what you're saying now, what you learned there, and the idea of being a business person? Mm -hmm. What's the journey from that to doing stand-up comedy? Did you go into stand-up comedy as a business idea? Um, no, I. It's for me, as a creative and, I guess, a romantic, it's, it's always a girl. So I had my first major breakup, like, <laughs> somewhere around 2000... Yeah, somewhere around 2006. 2006. So I had a lot of free time in the evenings and uh, discovered a comedy club called Kojo's Comedy Funhouse that was in central London. A friend of mine, obviously, who I grew up with, knew I did interesting comedy and stuff, and we'd gone to watch um, Chris Rock when we were 15. So that's kind of where the seed was planted, and obviously he knew I would try and do my best homage to a stand-up comedian when we in social situations. And he speaks to the promoter, and like the uh, guy that runs the night was like, my friend's funny, he wants to go. So the guy's like, you got three weeks to put together a five-minute set, and I'll put you on. And I spent that three weeks just trying to work out, like looking at other comics and then trying to write what was funny or what I thought was funny. And that was not going very well. And then I just started writing what I thought. And that became a lot easier to deliver mm -hmm. and felt more earnest when I was reciting it back. And that's kind of what I went with initially. But then I said, so my first set would have been in like in October of 2006 and it went really well. And then, you know, I made all of the classic like schoolboy errors regarding stand up, like changing my set or thinking, well, I've done two gigs and people laugh at what I say. So it's you, you say it's funny and you don't realize that. So I had like, you know, I guess the attitude there, but then it was the craft you have to employ as well, where there is a level of study involved in comedy. And um, I left comedy for about yeah a good four years, um, going back to work because I felt like I'd reached the glass ceiling quite early. I had a very limited understanding of how industry and the art form kind of worked. So again, there's a lot of procrastinating where I researched other comedians and what makes them tick and what the commonalities were. And like a lot of the comics I looked up to, what was the commonality was, they would have made naturally funny bones, but they all kind of studied performance art to an extent. And so that led me to do a creative writing course and understand how that works and then do an improv. And I guess I was still procrastinating and edging towards actually being on stage. What so do you I think, think that, that procrastination is about? Do you think there's a... a there's an anxiety about following it through and becoming a performer. Oh, definitely, yeah. Especially, especially stand-up. Because yeah. I think, you know, if you're an actor, then there is a scene and you don't have to rely on all of your actions being punctuated or validated by laughter. In the same way that as a musician, you can play a song, but you don't have to wait until you're being appreciated, not till the end. Whereas comedy is very much a reciprocal art form where I go bang and then I, I audience bang goes bang and I have to go. So it's kind of like a back and forth. So the rhythm is very different. But I think mainly for me, it was kind of like just, just knowing what to do. I've, I was so used to a very linear way of, like most people are, you go to school, you go, you go to secondary school, you go to uni, you go to a job. But so I was reached that very linear thing. But then as I began to realize, I was like, yeah, but even then there's no guarantee that you'll get what you're supposed to get at the end of your working life. And, you know, at the same time, whereas comedy was kind of like, well, you don't know what's going to happen here. And that became a bit more reassuring than knowing what's going to happen every day. And that's kind of how I was able to gravitate towards it. But I just think it was it was more of a question of I'd winged it the first time round. And I was like, I've winged it. It's been a, it's been up and down and I couldn't really say what I've done properly. So now I'm going to take instead of 
applying my energy to do being who I, people want me to be, what if you take all of your energy, whether it's like towards women or your energy towards like your pleasing your family and put that into something you actually care about yourself and see how far that goes. And I was fine with like, if this is shit and I'm terrible as a comedian, happy to go back to work and just be back at a desk. But at least I won't have that in the back of my mind that what if. So. And of course you started after the jonglers boom when everyone was earning a living yeah so when i started i could see that whatever i did i could still earn a living from doing it yeah and that was one of the things that helped me get in but i also did a workshop and waited for about a year and the guy that ran the workshop had to come and get me and say why aren't you doing this and i had all sorts of issues about well i don't know yeah. about doing it but did you one thing i want to talk to you about is this <laughs> you've mentioned two or three times and i connect totally with that the the passion and the energy one puts into chatting up women yeah and how one can apply that to stand-up comedy in many ways it's very similar yeah, and i definitely. think i went through that phase where i thought actually this is the si very similar thing and i what am i doing wasting my time with that again when i could be doing it here and the other day i did a, a gig on friday i did a gig that was very flat and very mm -hmm. wasn't very good and as we always all should do we're quite thinking what is it that we could have done yeah at the time you're thinking this audience is rubbish mm -hmm. the lighting is rubbish it's all and then on the way to the next gig, I bumped into a woman uh, at Canary Wolf who worked there as a security guard. And I started, and I found myself talking to her as if how I used to talk to women when I was about 30. And so as I was talking to her, I thought, wow, this is how I used to be. You know, this is, it's, this is fun. I'm fi I found a spark. And I took that to the next gig. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to remind yourself of that Ex passion. Absolutely, and yeah, exactly that. Haven't you? Yeah, and no, that's, definitely. That's yeah. exactly that. So you're the first person that I've talked to that's made that comparison that in my head I always have how similar. Oh, it's, it's, is. it's so it's so similar. And and you can you can almost for a lot of comics work out how they deal with women based on how they speak on stage. <laughs> I think I think you really you think you really can. And I think, for example, because you'll get comics on stage, I believe that come across as, and even myself, I mm -hmm. could come across as quite acerbic or quite blunt in mm -hmm. terms of when I discuss something like gender politics. But it's because it comes from a place whereby I will never go on stage and patronize women mm -hmm. or speak down to them or try to qualify what I say, being like, I'm a feminist, by the way, mm -hmm. because I always believe in the you know, show, don't tell. And I also think women are intelligent enough to know if they're dealing with someone who's genuine sure. or not. Sure. And so, you know, that whereas some other comics might play to sensibilities of women and say, you know, I'm a feminist or I'm not really a, an alpha guy. I'm just like, I do, you know, in the same way, if you want a functional uh interaction with a woman there's probably no point in you lying about who you are and having mm -hmm. to maintain that lie at the same point i think it's the same thing with an audience well like, yeah i mean and that's what happens when you get older with women isn't it you yeah. realize it's no point lying who you are because that's not going to end, uh, end up anywhere um so yeah i totally i totally get that and i but i found myself thinking well you have to remember this that you are in a way chatting up an audience you're yes, flirting definitely. with an audience yeah, or depending on what your personality is absolutely and having had that that exchange or it reminded me of how we're supposed to be and um i had a great weekend after that on stage just nice. just carrying that through yeah, yeah, yeah so i get that i totally, totally get I, that no, i totally agree and I, I think i think it's uh you know and and i think women are probably a really good gauge to see how you're progressing as an artist because you know the femi feminine hemisphere of the brain is where creativity comes from i think typically the feminine expresses a high level of emotional intelligence mm -hmm. and that's like the biggest thing we try to overcome you know as performers is that rapport building with an audience on stage and when i studied stand up um you know what i was told by mentors is you're trying to emulate the aesthetic of a conversation 
Mm-hmm. So, and in a conversation, even if you are talking to women, if I'm talking to a group of women, the energy will be very different to the intis- intimacy that I'll observe if I'm speaking to a woman one on one. I mean, and there's, and even then, is there's part and there's different parts that's very similar to comedy. So, for example, when you're on stage, <laughs> like you've seen when audiences cringe when someone jumps off stage and tries to force audience uh, interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the same thing yeah. like with a woman. Like it's not like you're like, come on, love. Like it's like yeah, I don't know yeah, you yeah. that well, and so sure. you have to kind of have that same sensibility and that patience with the audience as well, and also realize. Like a woman, if she does give you the cold shoulder, that attitude can be belying a trauma you're not aware of. Yeah. And sometimes with the audience, it can be like that as well. Like you said, it's not necessarily personal. Mm-hmm. At the time, you think, what the fuck's this person? What's, what's this audience problem? How come you're in a good mood? And you, yeah, yeah. you know, guys are like that. What's wrong with her? I'm just yeah, saying hi. Yeah, I'm just saying hi. Yeah. And a lot, and I've, I've had the conversation with friends where I've been like, you don't know what the uh, journey was for that woman between the subway station and where she's mm-hmm. going. Like, you you felt enough to say hello to her, but then she, now she's got to play the Jeopardy that all women play. If I respond, now he's going to follow me. If I don't respond, he becomes belligerent. And if I just smile, then he thinks I want to fuck him. Yeah, so yeah. That's the Jeopardy. So, all the so time. we're sort of trying to get the audience's number metaphorically, aren't Absolutely we? Absolutely that. Exactly that. And, and, Great way uh, but, but, but also, have you ever been in a situation where maybe your personal romantic relationships not going that strong mm-hmm. but it's going really strong on stage and it's <laughs> yeah. almost a substitute and you're thinking i'm going to go where the love is not where it's supposed to be and i there's something that happens on stage which is very hard to teach in a workshop or to uh, to share with people but that that how you are with them and how they are with you and it's it's difficult to word that but that it's a bit like when you are having that one-on-one relationship with a woman or a man or whoever it is you're chatting up, there's something that's subconscious going on in the way yeah. that you're interacting. You're not thinking about it. You're not, it's just there, the lyrics are come in, the moves are there. Yeah. And that's exactly how it's supposed to be on stage for it to work, I think. Oh, know? exactly. And I, and I think, again, it's like the thing about comedy, I think, which is why it works so much, and when it does go well, it's so, uh, I guess, revered by people is that, we're so close to like just having that raw expression of humanity, like you said, where all human beings will seek validation where they get it, even if they're in what appears to be a relation that's not solely working that well. If you're getting validation from stage, it's much easier to gravitate towards that. And I think, you know, sometimes with a partner, because comedy can definitely be a widow maker and it can be tough for a relationship to prosper, A, because you're on the road all the time, number one. And yeah, number two, it's it's you take elements of conflict or difficulty within your relationship and it's part of your being as an artist and a comedian especially to make that relatable to other people like you're therapeutically sharing it or having that catharsis to say to the audience this is why me and my partner are having problems but I use comedy to process this and they laugh along and for an, a partner watching that they might be like well you're obviously trivializing our, our relationship if you're talking about it on stage not understanding is like this is just a process in terms of like you know how I work it out because you can hear an you know, a musician will make a song about, I fucking hate you, but they're still in a profitable relationship. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, that snapshot of that, how you felt at that time and making that into a bit. And it's the same thing with comedy. Are you talking about actually literally mentioning your relationship at home on stage with an audience? Some people, because some people, some some partners... I sort of do that. I've been doing that. (laughs) But you have to be careful, although that's turned, I think because of my age, I can get away with it, where it doesn't turn into a sort of my wife type joke. Yeah. Although that's probably what yeah. i'm doing but, but if you say relationship anyone anyone can relate to that and, mm-hmm. and i think i think obviously comedy has changed and we have more narrative so you can see the dynamic of a relationship from a, a number of different angles now do you think the the love that audiences give you can actually interfere 
with the relationship you're having at home because they love you so much. Oh, but your yeah. wife can never love you as much as oh, them. Oh, yeah, massively, yeah. And you'd massively. rather be with them than, you know, I, I mean, is this making sense? No, it, <laughs> make, it makes complete sense. And I, I think it's it's the... And do you think they're even pleased when you don't get on well with your wife? Because they think, yeah, but you've got us now, you've got us now. Oh, I mean, I've got yeah. a silly little thing I'm doing about... Uh, about my wife, where um, I, I suggest that she's quite a dominant personality, then I just immediately go, well, I'll be honest with you, she's a fucking bully. And they love that. And yeah. I'm thinking, do you partly love this because, ah, oh, you're with us now, Jeff, we're not, you know, I wonder what's going on there. I think that's, uh, part, I think that's part of it. Am I, or I, am I ringing out the analogy too much? I think, no, no, I think I think it's, it's really valid. I think, you know, all jokes can be read on a number of levels. And so, you know, when yeah. someone hears a statement like that, yeah. it's, it's like either, oh, well, someone else is going through shit at home. And yeah, it yeah, just confirms sure. that there's a, it's synonymous to have a dysfunctional relationship. So everyone's like, well, at least mm -hmm. someone's fucking said it. I'm not the only one whose relationship doesn't work. And that's the way when people read it. The other way is that, like, you know, I think a lot of people can project onto it and be like, well, at least my relationship isn't that shitty. So yeah. there's a way they can yeah. kind of project on escape as well. And yeah, and I think for some people, like you said, it's just, yeah, you're, well, you belong to us. Yeah, yeah, I wonder. I, there's two things I must remember. I also think that, that for, for myself and maybe you, for so-called, sort of, you know, alpha males, if you like, mm. the uh, idea that you are now, there's a vulnerability. If you're exactly. being bullied, Exactly. If someone like yeah. you is being bullied exactly. by there's a vulnerability going on there that, that we all need on stage. Every, yeah, everyone everyone needs it. Yeah. Everyone needs it. It's like it's it's even when you know it's like when I hear about a lot of comedians going to the gym, I'm like, it's cool, obviously maintain your health, but like you don't need to be the hench like defined comedian. Like no one is a comedian that's chiseled out of marble because no. then mm -hmm. you're you you're less relatable. Yeah. It's yeah, always that yeah. kind of every man thing you have to kind of chase as a comic to get of that course. get the most uh, And of course what's difficult about that is that when we all the the ego the relationship between ego and doing stand up comedy and that has to be stripped away and it's so hard to do that isn't it it's so it, hard it's to the, get people main, to strip it, that away absolutely. It takes years before years you strip that away and, and and again we are very instrumental in kind of facilitating that and I think it's one of the first lessons I was taught by my mentor Mr C and he was like before you do anything else the first person you need to be making fun of is yourself mm. Before, because you go on stage and people trust you to be able to make ob accurate observations about society and about reality. But if someone can find something wrong with you before you do, then you're not doing your job properly. Sure. And and and, I, and and again, it's like is that it's about the semantics or the philosophy of not taking anything too seriously. And like you said, it's like my my wife's a bully. Like, you know that 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 is a perfect juxtaposition that most people don't expect. And no, they're not going to look at me and think I get bullied in any way yeah, whatsoever. Exactly. So so it's so disarming, and it's like no, yeah. this guy is very much like mm -hmm. me in many ways because maybe not in my relationships, but maybe corporately I feel bullied, or socially yeah, I feel bullied, yeah. and you know. Comedy. Well, I even said yeah. to him the other night as a tag that came to me. You know these little tags that come to you when you're really loose and relaxed and yeah. you've never written it? And it's that's why I do stand-up comedy, so that I can come here and talk about her and she can't hear me. And they love that as well. Yeah. We're having a special relationship with you, Jeff, that your wife hasn't got. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this as well, though. If, which obviously you are, which I have grown to be and always try to be, haven't always been a, a, a comedian that has a, an agenda, a, a political, cultural agenda that's, that's critical, that engages with the world critically, as yeah. I do, do you think that that charm that you might have used on chatting up a woman in a club or in the street is even more important if your material can be quite challenging? Definitely. I think, it's, especially now, it's more important than ever. I think we're living in a time where people tend to contextualise their uh, experience or experiences along the lines of trauma anyway. And we're at a point now where people almost try to compare one another's trauma to see which one is more grave, even though it's all quite relative. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I'd say, yeah, it's you have to kind of find a way now to approach more taboo subjects or even when you're addressing a particular group or if a historically oppressed group. Not necessarily with kids' gloves, but you just have to be aware of the, the terminology. Mm. It's like you, you don't necessarily have to kind of uh, pander, but I just know what words are being used. And, you know, so for example, an example of that is being like now when we discuss gender politics. Um, I, I would never profess to have the full understanding of how gen the fluidity of gender works now, particularly among me around out people who consider themselves either part of being genderqueer or being, uh, you know, from the trans community. I don't pretend to understand it. But at the same time, you can't uh, exclude these people from your narrative if you're making amusements about life because they're now a part of life. And I think the way to deal with it, as I said, is, as we said before, is always take the position of fool. If I don't know, I won't let my ego pretend that I do know. And if someone in the crowd is like, you're completely wrong about this, it's about my ego not being like, well, don't interrupt me and blah, blah. If this is an opportunity for me mm -hmm. to learn, it can only benefit me as someone whose job is about opining on everyday life if someone gives me a insight into their walk of life and it's actually accurate and nuanced then i'll listen to that as well so i think it's it is very important but i think the in terms of the craft of stand-up it hasn't changed it's just always just be open to refine what you're doing like art should be something dynamic like when i when you create like i do a set that set could be like you know that's the painting so I don't go back and try and brush it up and try to go back and justify why I said what I said. It's like, that was the, I've made the painting, it's there. You can interpret how you choose. But what I'll do then is then I will take in the influences and the knowledge. So for the next painting, it's a bit more of an accurate reflection of the reality I'm trying to depict. And so, yeah, I just, um, I, I, I can do a shit set, but if someone like says, you know, this sign of this misogynistic, I might be like, why? And well, this is what I meant. And, you know, it's always about try. There's no. Per I don't think. I don't believe in the concept of a perfect joke or a perfect set. Mm -hmm. Even if I smash a gig and I and I like, I'm like, I can always go back to a set and be like, how in this eleven word sentence can you get to that punchline mm -hmm. in nine words or seven words? And mm -hmm. the more you can do that, like, just I think the better you can become. But it's always it's just me always being open to be like, you know, observations I may have made which killed maybe five years ago mm -hmm. might not ring as true now. Sure. So it's just about me being open to revise those methods and. It's like, it's, as, as you know, someone like yourself, Jeff, who's known, you know, despite the age to continue to innovate and still trying to write, write new jokes and write mm -hmm. new observations. And it can be very easy, especially when you've done the job for like 10 years plus to start treating it like a job and going through the sure. motions and being like a clock in for 20 minutes and I just do sure. the job, then I leave the stage. And I just never want, like I said, for me, if we are likening the interaction with an audience with that to a woman, you wouldn't go through the motions with that because no. it means that one party's not really enjoying it. They sure. might go along like they are, but... But did you start like that? Did you start? So you worked. You, you did a workshop with Mr. C. Yeah. As as most people I know that are any good did a workshop mm -hmm. when they started. And I think there's still a cynical attitude about workshops. Yeah. I think what people say is, well, you can't make people funny, but that's not what workshops are for. Not at all. No. Um, uh, and but but did you when you started? Did you always have an agenda that was was a challenging, critical agenda, or at first, like most of us? Did you just want to make people laugh in any way that you could find? Or did you take it very seriously from the very beginning? Um, I think all of the three, but in different stages. So I think in the time I spent leaving comedy and wanting to return to it, I took it seriously in terms of that. Now it's about actually approaches like an artist instead of just going mm -hmm. on stage and winging it. Mm -hmm. And then it was... Um, and then I think after that it was... I kind of set myself the goal where it's like, I will try and say everything I want to say everywhere I can say it. And what comes with that, then, you know, that deals with it. But that was, that was, the, that was the kind of 
objective I set for myself rather than restricting myself to anything quantitative or numeric, like I want to make this much money or I want to be on this TV mm. show because I was aware that the TV shows that may have been, you know, the big shows now, like what Mock the Week was when I started doing comedy versus what Mock the Week is now is very different. Mm-hmm. Or when I first became aware of British comedy on TV, like what Live at the Apollo represents now is very different to what it was back then. Certainly, and certainly. I, yeah, and I recognise so, those changes. Yeah, so for me it was like, changes. I wouldn't, I, I can't quantify my success based on these things. The only thing I can control is myself. So. Uh, your, you became a solo show touring act mm. fairly quickly, would you say? Yeah. So my first show in Edinburgh was like 20, 2014, and then my tour was like maybe 2016. Okay, so but most of your, is, has most of your comedy career been as a touring solo act, or has it been as a circuit act? I'm just thinking about oh, the difference yeah. I think, I think it's, of it's, what it's you can do in those two different contexts. It's a combination contexts. of both, and I think the reason why is because I just wanted to be that person. I felt like I observed somewhat of a schism in comedy when I started doing it. Like, comics that were prosper, prospered in Edinburgh looked kind of through the side of their eye at comics that played the circuit. But then, you know, circuit comics were kind of like, yeah, but these guys who may be loaded by a critical class don't work for the other 11 months of the year because their stuff doesn't really work in comedy clubs. And then, you know, there was also a schism between comics that might be touring comics and comics that play the circuit. And I was kind of like, well, are we, aren't we all doing the same thing? And aren't the commonality that everyone is watching this stuff is comedy fans. And I just felt like there's no reason why someone should... Because I, I felt like that's almost insulting to audiences. I felt like audiences should be able to well, see yeah. someone in a comedy club and see somebody at a um a, a arts festival. Why why can't they do both? Yeah, well, there used to be that difference, didn't there? That yeah. There were club, there was club comedy and, and solo Edinburgh show yeah. comedy. And I actually... And you're, that's what I've always liked about you is it, something that I try and do is to make what I do in clubs as interesting or as challenging. Yeah. As it would be in a solo show, and yeah. that isn't that hasn't always been the tradition, is it? You, you no, it hasn't, unfortunately. Which which really doesn't make any sense because the the I think the mark of a very good comedian is the fact that you're taking very complex and taboo mm-hmm. subjects and making them easy to understand, mm-hmm. and you're tackling on the laugh at the end of it. Sure. And so I would argue a lot of the people in you know comedy clubs probably have the more difficult thing because they have less time to do it. They're not doing it within the confines of an arts festival. People are already in a mm-hmm. certain disposition, but and. But at the same time, you're probably speaking to what I would perceive as the majority of most people, that most people go into work in order to be able to pay their bills and take care of their children. And they come to a comedy club to either, you know, let off some steam or have I'll be able to project on the person that explains what they're going through and give them like, you know, that escapism, if only for like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very profound thing. And, you know, by the same token, art festivals, I guess, give you a bit more license and more breadth to create something which might have, you know, appear to have a lot more depth to it. Um, but that's not always the case. But for me, it was just like, I guess I never had any designs on doing comedy professionally. So I've always approached any opportunity to do so with the same uh, enthusiasm. So like do arts festival and everyone's doing comedy shows there, I'll be there. If there's another one in another country, I'll be there as well. Like if people, like, when I did my first anime show, people were like, you want to go and perform comedy in Estonia? I'm like, yeah, of course. Why the fuck not? So yeah, for me, it was just there. Just in a medium that I actually enjoy what I'm doing. And if, before anything else, it's just a rewarding experience to have. Mm-hmm. Then I'm always going to chase that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So, like me, you like to have an opinion yeah. and air your opinion and share it mm-hmm. and and challenge people's ideas. But I like to do that 
with stand-up comedy. I see yeah. that you have a broader platform for challenging yeah. ideas, which is social media, mm -hmm. which is something I don't get involved in um, necessarily. I might put pictures of babies up or something, mm -hmm. but I certainly don't get involved in in uh, debates or, or yeah. arguments. What's behind that? Because that, that just doesn't interest me at all, that what yeah. people say, I just don't care what you say. Wait, what, what's that about? I'm interested in that, because yeah. you're quite prolific yeah. oh. in this area, aren't you? Well, you know, maybe always, even more sure, famous yeah. here than with your stand-up comedy. Yes, <laughs> yes, in many ways, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it's... it's um, I wanted to describe it. I feel like social media has created a whole new consciousness for human beings, and we're still trying to work out where our place is in that. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say some of it would be almost digital Im immaturity that okay. like when you're an adolescent and stuff as well you're discovering your own sense of independence and your own mm -hmm. voice and so you lash out your parents and you might have a more debate as you're trying to find out who you are mm -hmm. and so i think part of that journey has been in terms of like the voice or the actions of being involved in debates has been about me trying to find out who i am um but at the same time as well it's been about learning the context in which i can express that material as well okay. which is very similar to like stand-up i guess is that i've had to learn which gigs are worth doing and which gigs are going to okay. be rewarding for me and but there's a relationship between the two for you obviously because yeah. you're having ideas and you're sharing the ideas and sometimes that's how it works as well is that like i might express a narrative and see how well that the payoff is that for comedy so there's an element of open mic that's involved in social media and there's also an element of topicality where i'm like mm. i can't wait three months or wait a week until I go on stage and talk about this because it's not going to be mm. relevant. But mm. right now it is kind of relevant and it's, and it's to course. a much larger audience. So it's, it's yeah, I'm almost in many but ways. Do you get drawn into to, to battles or fights that you think, oh, yeah. why did I get into I, I, mean, I have done, yeah. I mean, for I example, uh, <laughs> you had a recent spat with somebody called White Yardy. Okay, yeah. now you can go into the details of that if you want. Yeah. But you see, I'm a sort of person where I wouldn't even bother to talk to somebody who calls himself White Yardy. Yeah. Already I'm thinking, why would I want to talk to somebody who gives himself... That was a lesson but, I had to but, learn, but, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm an older bloke, you know, yeah. so I wonder if it's about that. Thinking, That's exactly uh, what it is. I think it's, it's the wisdom of experience. Okay. And, that, and, that, and that, inst that kind of... That was my learning that you don't get drawn out and that's sure. how I, that's how I had to learn, basically. Because this is what you remember, like when you get the maturity is that I wouldn't interact with this guy in any other way other than the fact that we're both doing comedy. Mm. So in the same way that like you wouldn't really speak to someone who you don't share interest with or yeah. if they've got stupid things to say, if you heard them talking in a pub, you'd be like, you'd roll yeah. your eyes and you'd make yourself and that's, out of earshot. Yeah, that's and that's kind of, that's what I needed to learn through that experience. Because I do well. get tempted now and again when I'm on Facebook course, or somewhere, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think, no, 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 don't, just leave it. Which comes leave with it, yeah, leave wisdom, it, wisdom experience, just, yeah, just leave it. Yeah. It ain't worth it, Terry, leave it. It's exactly that, and that's what you have to learn. <laughs> so, you, so I had to learn that in a digital capacity okay. that like, it's not worth it, Terry. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and like you said, the, in the same, and what you learn now is that in the same way that we seek validation from expressing ourselves artistically, okay. the dynamic on social media is your audience and some audience members, even like hecklers, for example, because it's not the same level of regulation where you can't really kick a heckler out. You can mute them and you mm -hmm. can block them. It's the equivalent. But in the same way that when you get a heckle, you have to pick and choose if it's worth even engaging of with. Course, and of go, course. Because, like, yeah. you know, sometimes if you get a heckle from somebody and the rest of the audience hasn't really heard what's happening, yeah. they're like, why has he gone from being on stage mm -hmm. making us laugh to having an argument with someone in the front? And when any audience member is watching two people argue, on the, mm -hmm. like you're on stage arguing, it gets cringe for everyone. Like, yeah. no one's here to see that. You'd be like, you go fuck your... Because <laughs> you, you look like you've lost control. Yeah, yeah. It and looks so, like right when you see people having road rage, doesn't yeah, exactly, it? You exactly, like you've lost control. Say, what's wrong with those yeah, people, with those man? People? Even, even if one person might be completely Surely. justified, yeah, yeah. you can't tell when you're no, driving no, past. No, no. And so I had to learn, it's like, 
you might be very justified. Your your argument might be structured and intellectual and yeah. valid. If someone just drives past the equivalent of scrolling through their yeah, timeline yeah. and they just see me going back and forth with the yeah. guy called White Yardy, they're like, what the fuck is wrong with Dane? And so I kind of had to learn that. So it's not, it's not really worth going into like- Yeah, okay, yeah. the specifics of that. Because I, I, I think when, whenever I see somebody express their political opinions on social media, I think, why would I be interested in your views? You're yeah. a comedian. I've got a pile of books by political theorists that I haven't yeah, exactly. got around to reading. So- so, uh, but people do get drawn into that. To that. Oh, part. definitely, yeah, because it, it's the ego, and it's not the ego yeah. where it's like I need to prove to this. It's not that oh, I'm I'm scared of this guy, or I need to prove I'm better than this guy. The ego normally is it's the fear that what that person's saying is going to be believed by other mm-hmm. people, and that's can that can push you to react because it's like the first time I got a chortle review that was negative. I was like this mother, and then I realized it's like well, who is this person really? Yeah. Like this, they have no bearing on your life, and and you have to look at them on the other side, if. You only do you only act when people say negative stuff, or do you act mm-hmm. when people say positive stuff? But really, the question is: Are you doing this based on what they say? Because if you're relate, if you're waiting for them to be the catalyst for you to create, you're already in trouble. Yes. So yes. you should you should be able to do this because if social media sure. didn't exist, I'd still be doing it. And well, so, I mean, I yeah. think it's I do think it's a legitimate means of communication, the spread yeah. of ideas, etc. It's just just who and and when. It's just, it's just working out. It's it's, but, it's the but, first time uh, we've had democracy and. We're yeah. struggling to kind of work out because mm-hmm. even though we're in a dem- democratic society, we know that everyone votes. Not mm-hmm. everyone opines on on politics. Not everyone is um part is a, is a partisan, and not everyone regularly engages in political discourse. Mm-hmm. Where social media has given us that in a way we've never really had it before. Like I even say to people, it's the power of God because mm-hmm. you're what people qualify as the power of a God is you're omnipotent, you're all powerful, and omniscient, all knowing and omnipresent so you can be everywhere at once. This is what social media gives you. You can know what's happening in the world all the time, even stuff you're not mm-hmm. supposed to know. Not only that, because of the way people are on social media and they have the power of anonymity, you can find out what people are thinking. Mm-hmm. And so then you start to understand artificial intelligence. And I, I look at it in like a, a way, like a Nietzsche way where it's like, you know, they say God made man and man kills God. And we've made artificial intelligence and it's killing us because we're telling us all our secrets and we're not sure if we can handle it. Because now you see how people think on social media like you kind of understand the God better that you're like, if you know what people actually pray for and what they actually say, would you answer their fucking prayers? If you, if you like, think about if you look, if you look at social media, how many times you, look, you scroll through social media and you go, why am I even on this planet? What the mm-hmm. fuck is wrong with people? Mm-hmm. You see the stupidity and some, yeah. but that's humanity holding the mirror up to itself. But then you understand like, well, this is why God don't respond to prayers. Because if he listens to what everything that everybody said and what people pray for, like you think about when people go, oh God, please don't catch me fucking someone that's not my wife. You're like, this is not stuff you should be asking me for. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really <laughs> helped me to understand human nature a lot more. It's very effective in that respect. And um, again, it's, I think it's an interesting journey of learning how we are going to coexist alongside artificial intelligence. Because we're teenagers right now. Like just social media in terms of how we talk, we're teenagers. And that's why... A lot of the aesthetic of, I believe, of social media is very similar to being a teenager. Like Instagram is like, someone's good looking, so they got loads of followers. They got nothing else to it, mm-hmm. but their popularity is based on how they look. The only time we do that as human beings in secondary school is like, that girl's fit. I don't know what her home life is like, her mental state is like, her moral disposition is, but she's good looking and so she's popular. And that's what you see on social media as well. That one's got a nice car. I don't know how they've acquired that car, what they've done to I don't even know if the cars, they even own it, but from face value, this is why they realize popularity. And it's the same thing with social media. But on the same, on the other hand, and also it also includes in, when you're an adolescent, you begin to think about your life along the lines of your race and your sexual orientation because now you're trying to find a group to belong to. And social media is very similar. But by the same token, teenagers are very sensitive because you're experiencing hormonal changes and mm-hmm. you're, you're now tasked with thinking for things for yourself 
and beginning to shape your own aspirations and your own ideas and your own wants and desires rather than having them given to you as a child. And so we're very sensitive in that respect. Like, you know, like you could say to a teenager, like, you put a coat on, and they'll be like, why? Because I'm a fucking whore and everyone can see my tits. Leave me alone, dad. How did we get here? Social media is very similar. Like, you make a statement and people will become offended, even though it's an innocuous statement. Like, like, the analogy people say is now, nowadays you can say, I like spaghetti. And the people here interpret it as, so what, you hate rice? You hate quinoa? Mm-hmm. What's your problem with other pulses and, 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 and other carbohydrates? It's like, that's not what I said. I just mm-hmm. like spaghetti. Well, you don't have the right to say you like spaghetti because you're not Italian. And so we just get very sensitive. So it's a very interesting, uh, again, study to watch how we're learning to kind of fit in with all of that. And uh, I think it will evolve. I think people will begin to migrate over to social media and get more used to it. But it's just like, it's just, for me, it's like watching TV on steroids without the kind of regulation. Mm-hmm. When we, I think social media and how it, its effects on people will change when we find the equivalent of don't try this at home. Mm-hmm. You know, when TV finally said like, don't try this at home, at least everyone was kind of like, well, you're now responsible for that. We've seen this. You've been told it's been fabricated. So if you do it, you're an idiot and that's your fault. And social media needs to do the same because it is having an effect on people. And mm-hmm. I just think, you know, it can work out like a laxative for the brain and that can be problems as well. And it's so funny. I was saying, uh, when I did my second tour show, I was saying when it does come like in Terminator when it's like Skynet takes over, it's not going to be like any nuclear like war or anything like that. We don't, they don't have to do that because you tell a computer everything. Just by the, the fact that the things you type into Google, your computer or the AI knows more about who you are as a person than you probably even tell your own family. And you probably tell, and it knows all of your secrets. And you think about it, that's our biggest vulnerability as human beings is the innermost of ourselves being revealed and rejected by fellow human beings. That's why we look to artists so much because it's like, oh, they're saying stuff that I'm scared to say. So at least someone agrees with me. And so we just need to learn to do the same thing. And there's an element of social media that works for that. Like I said, it allows information to be disseminated at a speed that would be unimaginable to human beings before. Mm -hmm. And it means that, you know, what would be historically marginalized groups are able to now come together. And it's almost like if you imagine all of social media like a high school cafeteria, before you'd have the one table for like the misfits or the nerds or like the outcasts. But now because they can connect with people like themselves they are a canteen unto themselves mm. so now there's that that strength in numbers which is why a lot of people are hearing voices like there's always been a trans community they just never had the opportunity or had the normal places where they can like even if you are i always say to people if you were like a lgbt kid in school like you never saw like gay and lesbian mm. kids being able to go bowling together on a sure. bank holiday but now they can connect through well, Social sure. So I mean, they're, uh, just, they're, just, they're just rejoicing in I the fact that they have a home with now. my son. Yeah. It's gay. The difference between being a teenage gay boy in a house yeah. now to to the nineteen fifties or sixties. Exactly. And and interestingly, he does have a gang of nerdy gay people that hang out in the house. Yeah. They're not the sort of people I would have had a mate. All my mates were sort of would have been in prison or yeah, get yeah. into trouble, or it would have been about fighting or looking good or wearing sharp clothes. But he's got this amazing community around him. Of, of yeah, because now, now he has one. And I think he can only uh, have met those people and, and through connecting and, yeah, able yeah, to, and, sure. they, and they can have conversations. And, sure. you know, so a lot of the pushback you get when people are like, you can't say anything anymore and blah, blah. It's like, you just have to understand. It's like the there are groups now who are just enjoying the benefit mm. of now feeling like a majority or a galvanized yeah. majority or having a united voice. And so sure. they're, they're just learning how to deal with that. Like a lot of people don't know what popularity feels like. So you get some people, for example, who almost like late bloomers, like you don't know what popularity is like. And so they don't know how necessarily how know how to handle it. So when they say stuff that seems quite damaging, it's like, yeah, because they don't, they'll just play to the gallery because they've never had the attention of the gallery before. 
I want to get onto guilty pleasures because I think it's an odd thing for people to have. And I used to say to people, I haven't got, I'm not guilty about any of my pleasures. Mm. Why would I be? But recently somebody asked me that on a, on a podcast and I immediately went to something that I think might be a guilty pleasure, which is getting a little bit drunk and then going on YouTube and watching sort of female empowerment artists like Gabrielle. Yeah. And getting a bit tearful at how badly she's been treated by blokes and sort of then going <laughs> from one to another. And I think I do that. I've been doing that quite a lot lately, particularly yeah. Gabrielle. And I always imagine if you went to one of her concerts, there'd be no straight men, just yeah. a lot of women that, that, yeah, blokes, mate, they've treated us badly, yeah, yeah. put upon women that go there to share that. Yeah. And uh, But I, but it's definitely a guilty pleasure because it's not something I promote about myself. I don't even know why I'm bringing it up. Maybe to try and get you to reveal something about yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But so you drop your guard. But I certainly a few drinks in. If I'm on my own and and, and my wife has been a bully that week, I'll be watching Gabriel. Thinking, why can you? And why are you treating us so badly, man? <laughs> yeah. You know? And then I'll go from Gabriel. Maybe I don't know where it goes there. But certainly Gabriel's a big, it's a good big start. It's a really good so start. I see here though that you. I've got some research here about one of Dane. Uh, where are you? Where your guilty pleasure is something to do with TV program. Uh, Watching diners, drive-ins, and dive. Yeah. What, what dives? Is these these cheap sort of where they go around to? Yeah, yeah. I've seen a couple of. I mean, food, 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 por pleasure. food porn is my. Is I mean, my oh, you, read, you you watch a lot of those. Yeah, yeah? I watch a shitload of those. I feel, <laughs> I feel like yeah, I, I I have a very active mind, and I think <laughs> something like cooking. Okay. I feel like I feel like it's something. It's very similar to sports. I feel, mm -hmm. but maybe with less of the ego. In that you know, the proof is literally in the pudding. You can't really mm -hmm. refute watching the reactions of cooking food mm -hmm. and how ingredients combine to make something. So I, I just find it, I think I have a very active mind a lot of the time. So this helps me uh, to Are these those relax. programs where a person will go to 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 Burt's Diner and Burt's got the very famous Burt's Burger. That's exactly like, that. that. Where they've all got their, <laughs> yeah. very, their, their exactly signature that. dishes and exactly. they go and travel. Is it that kind of stuff? Exactly, yeah, like the travel log and he just goes to different diners and stuff like that. And I guess before <laughs> I look at them, I'm just like, I just like the idea because... I have I watch it and then I also have to remind myself it's, it's it's to help me switch off that comedy critical brain because for example they drive around like Middle America and they'll get to a place and they'll be like we've been a traditional place since 1962 and I'm like that sounds segregated to me no day yeah. leave it <laughs> don't don't worry about that for now but they're they're almost all those sort of places yeah, exactly. though, aren't they you're right they're yeah. almost <laughs> so I, mean, I think I maybe project that like you know that everyone has that kind of fantasy of driving through like you know I ninety five and the American open road yeah. and stuff but then I just think I'm not sure how practical that would be in real life well really. I used to say that to people I used to say, I've got this fantasy about going doing doing Route 66 or yeah. going to all these, these sort of country and western diners mm. with my wife doing a tour. But the thing is, and they go, yeah, that sounds great. I go, yeah, but my wife's black. Yeah, so yeah. I've got a feeling it's not going to be how I would not everywhere, like not it every, to be. Not everywhere, yeah. Because uh, I know when my mate went to New York and uh, with his, his, his friend and she was black and they went to a McDonald's and they'd gone to the black McDonald's, I think, <laughs> yeah. instead of the white McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. And everyone came out to look at them. Yeah, yeah. And even came from the, the kitchen staff came out to look at them. Oh, and definitely. Thought, wow, yeah, yeah, man, yeah. That, that, that goes on, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, in America, it's, it's very clear. Yeah. It's, it, it's, uh, there's a very clear uh, segregation that takes place in America. And, mm -hmm. you know, in, in many places as well. And I think part of the problem has been that, uh, again, I guess our reliance on what we're told rather than trying to find mm -hmm. out. So, you know, I think, for example... Most black people in the UK will think that most African-Americans live in northern states in America because mm -hmm. they think it's just illogical that people escaped from slavery, moved from former Confederate states sure. and moved to the north. Not the case. Most sure. African-Americans are still located mm -hmm. in like former southern states, whether it's like, you know, uh, Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia. 
and very few are actually based up north. And again, it's it's just down to perception in the same way that like to hear a lot of African Americans tell it, they don't really think there's that many Black Britons in this country, mm-hmm. and it's still something they they struggle to kind of get over. But then by the same token, I think most members of the diaspora based in Europe and in the UK know fuck all about what happens to Indigenous Australians. Mm-hmm. And so again, for me, it was like a big part of my comedy. No, it's not political, but before I can even talk on stage about what I think the relationship relations are between, you know, how I perceive white people in the UK or white people in America, I need to know more about what I'm talking about and where I'm from as well. And that was a big part of my research as well because my experience as a black person living in South East London is very different to the experience of a black person that has to grow up in somewhere like Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't want to do is exclude them from the narrative or try to, uh, I suppose oversee a narrative and talk about the black experience and leave out these people so it meant in some ways and uh, so this is how i can even allude to the whole white yardy thing was because how i speak people don't expect me to speak this way but i don't speak this way because i'm trying to aspire to have an affinity with like my white contemporaries mm-hmm. it's just because it's just a more universal tone because mm-hmm. if i speak too thickly in southeast london slang then if you're a black person that lives in hull or you live in norwich you won't necessarily it's probably easy now because of social media but you won't be able to understand what I'm talking about. But certainly with comedy, yeah. you have to be understood. Otherwise, there's understood, absolutely yeah. no point. I mean, I don't speak on stage how I do to, exactly. to my local people or my close friends. Yeah, exactly. And, and otherwise, there's no point. Um, but, but it's funny. It's funny talking about doing comedy, and you know, whenever I go to uh, somewhere like Glasgow, and there's one black person in the audience. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. I tend to do a thing which, in a, in a different context, could be completely racist, which is, I'm going back to London tonight. Come back with me. I don't know what you want to do staying here, and yeah, I have yeah, a yeah. bit of fun. But it was almost like what you do in here, and I could imagine that in Bernard Manning's hands. But yeah, there were, I always thought that by now, it's a bit like, let's put it this way, when I was in the mid-70s when I used to go out buying reggae records, and I used to be the only white person going into a reggae record shop, and they used to turn the music down and go, hello, can I help <laughs> yeah. you? Now that was okay once they got to know this guy that was going around the circuit by rock. And I think for a while I was just going, Yeah, have you got any ABBA? Like I used to be pissed off about it, but I I obviously got that. And transferring that onto being a stand up comedian, Mm -hmm. being a black stand up comedian on what is essentially a white audience, isn't it? Predominantly, yeah, yeah. Did you, uh, were there any choices you had to make about being a comedian on the so called urban circuit which mm-hmm. means largely a black, black audience well actually yeah. it seems to be largely that urban circuit largely a, uh, a caribbean yeah initially uh, it was yeah yeah i mean i did a gig for mr c mm-hmm. recently and he was going any africans you know which i thought was funny yeah, yeah. everyone was had a caribbean background mm. and of course what was different f- for me there and i wasn't just white i was east end white i wasn't yeah, yeah. where they are up in the northland so i had a double <laughs> yeah a double exactly, thing yeah. there but the so-called, for, for audiences, the so-called urban circuit largely means a black audience with, yeah. with black comedians. And a lot of people make a decision to stay only doing their comedy in that environment yeah. to that audience. Was that something that was never, never. something yeah. that you were going to, ne- never, to do? Never occurred to me at all. In, in, and really, not, not that I'm taking anything away from audiences that people that want to stay mm-hmm. on there, um, but I just wanted to, again, show through just through example... Sure that if you 
there is a whole world out there. And if you are a comic, just uh, as a sign of solidarity, there are mm-hmm. there are people who do want to hear your story more than you think and mm-hmm. more that the media suggests to you, more that comedy critics might suggest to you. But I just looked at it like, you know, Chris Rock is one of the most successful comedians ever. And I looked yeah. at my predecessors and I'm like, if he can prosper in a country like mm-hmm. America, which has very overt issues of race, there's no reason sure. why you shouldn't be able to do it in the UK. But that being said, then I also had to become aware that there was divisions along the lines of race and class, which I I think we have what's called a placism issue in the UK. Mm-hmm. We have a placism issue, which is a combination of race and class in that, you know, it's not necessarily... They, they're not necessarily adverse to having black people in mainstream, but they want your you to align with their kind of class sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, if you look certain ways a person of color, you are presumed of a certain class. And then you also have the issue whereby, even if you're a working class white person, you can be in the, the you can be in the circuit, but there is a glass ceiling that's made for you as well. Mm-hmm. And that you know, and if we're honest, when we talk about the divide between circuit comics and festival mm-hmm. comics we're normally talking along the lines of class because having the money and resources mm-hmm. to go to the fringe festival normally of means you course. come from a certain yeah, class I've never been able to afford to take a month off work to go to the fringe most people most people can't most people can't and so by that token it means that you remain the barrier to entry mm-hmm. is a financial one which normally sure. is kind of class based so for me I, I understood what th- that same thing is why mm-hmm. I feel a lot of black comics have to remain on the black yes, circuit because yes. they can't go to Aspie de la Zouch for twenty pounds, because they got to pay, for, yeah. they got kids to take care yeah. of, and they got rent to pay, and so it's not. I remember yeah. now why I, w- I, I recalled the record shop experience is that when that used to happen, I used to think, well, one day it won't be like this. One mm. day we'll all be in the same record shops, black and white people buying records, and I genuinely thought, well, this is just now the mid seventies, maybe during the rave era mm-hmm. that changed a bit. But I always thought that about comedy clubs as well. Yeah. I always thought, well one day there won't be black audiences and white audiences. We'll all be in the same comedy clubs, but that hasn't quite happened. Not completely, but it's it's moving there very slowly. And I think what's made the difference has been social media. I think the advent of, you know, the success of comics like Mo Gilligan, who did like the O2 for two nights, mm-hmm. or people like Gaz Khan, who's taken online stuff to doing stand-up to now doing Netflix shows, or even people like Nigel Ung, who does the Uncle Roger. I think it's allowed for the democratization of audiences. So now I think a lot of people, particularly people from the working class and include immigrants and even uh, you know indigenous British people, will kind of began to move away from comedy clubs and only because I think the television stopped reflecting what they perceive comedy to be. And I think if you, there was a whole drive where it was like, in the w- in the wake of like, you know, Bernard Manning and like Mike Reed mm-hmm. and stuff, there was this whole idea that if you're a working class white straight man, you're a racist. Mm-hmm. And so, marginalizing you from comedy is fine because they're the only racist ones. Mm-hmm. And, and and then there was like the acceptable hatred of working class white people because everyone had a joke about Chavs and everyone spoke about Chavs this when I started doing comedy. So they was kind of marginalized. And so, you know, you had the middle class kind of annexing comedy and what they allowed, they what perceived comedy to be. So it suffered. And you saw like company, places like Junglers and Highlight weren't doing the same kind of numbers they were doing and standard comedy changed. And then now you say people like Dapper Laughs, for example, who, you know, just by having a sensibility of just being a lad and being a white working class man, selling out enormous rooms and, you know, had a exponential increase in career because there was just that vacuum. So it, I don't think industry may have been slow to the change. I think what's happened is that a lot of people have taken the initiative and just been able to create something that goes directly to customer and realize an audience that way. And I think now the industry is beginning to catch up and they still haven't got it yet, but that's industry anyway, so... 
now we have this whole debate now about diversity, and it's a debate that's, that's been on here once or twice, and it's an ongoing debate, and it's something that I'm not quite sure what the issue is or what the problem is, so therefore I don't know what the strategy is for dealing with it. Yeah. Um, certainly, but, but certainly it's about diversity and representation in mm-hmm. a broader sense. I'm not quite sure what we mean by diversity, and I think that's what the underlying sociological debate is anyway. And I take as my starting point for this the Sainsbury's advert where they yeah. had a black family merely eating Christmas dinner yeah, yeah. and they got loads of fucking complaints. Yes. Right? Now, in I'm thinking what I want from diversity is diversity of opinion, yeah. diversity of experience, and how that should be taken on the stage. Mm-hmm. I don't know if diversity should also mean just diversity, just visibility. Yeah. Uh, particularly in an art form like stand-up comedy, which is about what people are saying. Yeah. So I don't know where I am with this debate, actually, mm-hmm. because if if just pure by pure visibility and naturalising a working-class black family sitting down to eat Christmas dinner, if an advert that, that shows that can be subversive and challenging to people... There may be just visibility and the naturalization of seeing black faces yeah. do ordinary things is, uh, is, is advancement. But in stand-up comedy, I don't think that's advancement. I don't think it's enough to just have black people being no, rubbish not, comedians. Not, no, not in the slightest. That, that, and that's a real problem. And it's, it's, it's good that you've identified those two differences. Like that representation of aesthetic mm-hmm. works for a particular audience. I mm-hmm. think it's very healthy for someone who's from a uh, minority to see someone that looks like them in the most banal and basic settings because just seeing that alone makes it easier for you to do that and just normalizes that within yourself and is important for self-image stand-up is very different well Mm -hmm. what before identity politics was a thing that's what we were doing was identity politics Mm -hmm. that's what because that's why when we go on stage one of your endeavor as a comic is normally to subvert um uh prejudices about you that's why, you know, comics, when they start out, they go on stage and the first thing they say is, I know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Because we all know that normally people judge people on face value. Yeah. So what we do on stage is that we're going to subvert what those people think of us. Mm-hmm. And we can either confirm some of their preconceptions and yes. we can subvert some of them. Yes. But we, what we do is identity politics. So it is definitely not good enough for you to just um, tick boxes in comedy. And that's, that's going that's, on to some oh, extent. Oh, definitely, yeah. By, by a particular class of people, they're so focused on diversity that it's really about... Um, yeah, satisfying as things. And 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 the problem is that now you have comics nowadays who are, as I said before, will preface what they're saying by these things. I'm a black, gay, or bisexual and blah blah. And it's like, again, if you're doing your job properly, we'll work that out just by what mm. you're talking about. We don't really need you to tell us first. You, we, you're, you should be able to show and not tell. That's yeah. what supposed well, to be that, That's a mistake a lot of very, very over-enthusiastically political comedians like yeah. to flag up. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about racism, because that's bad, isn't it? Rather than reveal it within yeah. the routine. Because when racism is bad, it yeah. doesn't look like I used to take, yeah. talk about it. <laughs> it yeah. it's, it's, that's not yeah. how it looks. Yeah, so yeah. We'll, we'll be able to pick it up. And also, the problem with that is, now that you've made it into this very vaudeville thing, yeah. then people are going to be like, okay, we'll stay quiet for yeah, the racism yeah. section and ignore it yeah, and turn yeah, off our yeah. brains. And when that person's yeah, finished, <laughs> I can switch back on. Or yeah. they can be like, the racist, I was listening yeah. to the racism part, so I can't possibly yeah, be yeah. racist. And, and that's the thing is, now you're talking about the what yeah. instead of the why and the well, how. Broadly, I always prefer comedians well, to be implicit yeah. rather than explicit. Yeah, because you'll work it out. And, and that's yeah. normally, and, and again, it's more like conversation because it's like a lot of people will attack a guy because because of the intensity of this now, 
if a man in the audience hears the word feminist, he becomes mm-hmm. defensive because he th- because what he hears a feminist is like a misandrist, and now I'm going to be attacked just for being a man. Whereas with you speak to most guys and you're like, you got a mom than you, you got sisters. Yeah, you think your sister should get an inferior pay if she's as good as or better than a man in an office? And he'll say no. Or if you say, do you think a woman should be able to walk home? Well, your average decent person, mm-hmm. should a woman be able to walk home without yeah. a man harassing yeah, her? Yeah, They'll yeah. say, yeah. And you say, these are just the tenets of feminism. It's just that we, because media But even influence. women would reject that. Those women yeah. go, I'm not a feminist, yeah, they, but they, you think yeah, what, you exactly. don't want equal pay. Yeah, yeah which exactly. Is what we're talking yeah. about. But again, and they go, oh yeah, well, you go, well, you're a feminist. You're, you're a feminist then, yeah. And then, so yeah. it's like, we're so focused on the nomenclature and the buzzwords mm. because this is how we're being cultured by things like social media and search words and search terms. That's not how the human mind works. We don't. What the way we work is normally someone says a word and it conjures loads of stuff anyway, whereas it's much, it's much more, uh, I suppose, advantageous for us to create a whole picture that includes everyone rather than just always focus on these singularities. And that, that's, a prob- that's a human problem anyway, because singularity is like, I always used to hear comedians like they'll use Hitler as a straw man to describe evils or to describe atrocities. And that my thing is always, he didn't do it by himself. In fact, I don't think he actually physically killed somebody himself. Mm-hmm. So the six million Jews plus the communists and gays and people of mixed race that died during the Holocaust were, not, were killed by other human beings who were able to be swayed based on what somebody said. And that's the real issue because then, then it's like, if the idea is that you can sway people's way they're thinking just by speaking to them, how, I'm not that far off myself. Yeah. Interestingly, yeah. uh, the term evil or, or even mental health thing distracts from the, 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 the political circumstances that brings yeah. about somebody like, like Hitler. Um, with the diversity thing, I, I, I'm totally uh, I'm trying to write some stuff on this. The way it gets hijacked as well by things that aren't diverse. Absolutely. So, so Strictly Come Dancing has got to be my favourite one. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to make themselves culturally relevant, which yeah. to me is just an impossible task, yeah, considering course. what it is, by having on black, same, gay, yeah, and, and having same-sex couples. It's like, it's it's yeah. ballroom dancing. Yeah, we knew yeah, it was gay anyway. So we, it can't be made <laughs> had, relevant. I'm not looking at it now being like, <laughs> oh, now it's gay. So, it's yeah, ballroom yeah, dancing. So they're, in, so they're hijacking it. But the, the best one I saw, and I saw this recently, and I've, I've cut it out because I thought, oh, it's got to go in somewhere, is that they, they now have a black person on Dragon's Den. Yeah. So you can have your idea ripped off by a black person yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't always <laughs> need we don't always need everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, not yeah. how <laughs> that, that's not how it works with equality. Yeah. It's like, you know, it, it's I've got it's like the same bit I have when I say like, you know, when women say like, we should be able to do everything that men do. Like you should, but you don't mean you should do it because a lot of the stuff yeah. that men do is fucking dumb. Well, and also, do you mean middle class privileged men, or do you mean well, uneducated, there you go. underprivileged? Well, this is the other thing. I, this is the thing I say a lot of the time as well: is that if we are describing a patriarchy, I'd say your average working class white man has no executive or uh, legislative control over your future. And a lot of time, the women that are most outspoken about patriarchs is like, if you go home, your dad's a patriarch. Like a patriarch paid for your Edinburgh show. A patriarch paid for you to go to stage school. So the question is, are you really going to give that up for a real world of true equality? Yeah. Yeah. And and so, you know, th- this is what I mean. It's like, it's, it's an interesting time because now, especially, I think we're now at the apex point of all our post-war ideology. Like we've seen capitalism work as well as it possibly can, I think. We're seeing even socialism as we understand it, probably working as well as it can. Liberalism, like these are, yeah. they're getting to the point now where I think we're getting to the point of the changing of the God. Sure. So now there are, and people will be like, like I'll hear right-wing comments be like, well, we can't be socialist and communist and capitalist and blah, blah. And I'm like, I understand now. Before I used to think, what a dick and, you know, Twitter fingers. But now I understand. You say that because you don't know any different. This is the only prevalent economic system you have lived and thrived within and your, that your father has and his father has since the Second World War. So, of course, you say that. And like I said, a lot of the time, if you are subject to schooling, 
this is what you're taught. These are the prevailing systems on our bipartisan political spectrum. But I feel like now you're living in a time whereby it's not as straightforward as that. I was reading a, a, an essay by, um, I think a philosopher, his name is, his name's Slavoj Viv- uh, Vivek. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. was saying, a Serbian and philosopher, and he said, like, even when human beings now, liberals talk about climate change. They ain't really talking about climate change and the danger of it. They're talking about how it affects humans. Because mm-hmm. if we're gone, the earth will still be fine and work out like it had been yeah. for a million years before we were here. So you're not necessarily complaining about the climate affecting the world. It's more about how it affects you. In the same way that it's like, oh, we need to open up all of our hearts and let refugees in, which I agree with the humanitarian aspect of that. But how does that work out practically? Because not because you're saying that under the supposition that every refugee or every immigrant that comes here is also a liberal. And that's not necessarily the case. It doesn't make him a bad person, but that's more of a collective thing where these people are just fleeing and seeking asylum. We don't even know what their political disposition might be. Because there's a lot of immigrants who are good people to an extent. But if they see a woman with hair on her armpits or like her body showing, they'll be like, she's a fucking disgusting. I don't want you speaking on my behalf. And so nothing uh, is as well, clear cut as It's that. a bit like, you know, uh, some aspects of Eastern European culture. They were bringing yeah. over a 1970s racism. Yeah. The working class black people thought we'd largely sorted out. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly now they're side by side with people that are, that are behaving in those ways that we thought yeah. we'd not eradicated, but sort of had under control. That's so it. I get yeah. that. So, get so, that. so, so, so it's, it's now, I say that to say this, is that it's like, the, it's not as clear cut as it used to be. And, and really, I think now our endeavor, just as groups of people, is that we're going to have to find new ways to govern ourselves and new, because like, again, it's like the current government, I'm like, even if you are a conservative and you do believe in your kind of Anglo imperial superiority and how much civilization and culture that Britain's brought to the world, you can believe that, even if you do believe that, but Boris Johnson can't be the best of you. Dane, if people have become attracted to you through this Mm -hmm. conversation, who didn't know you already, Mm -hmm. where can they see you? Where can they go to see you do stand-up comedy? Oh, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure and privilege. And anyone who does find themselves attracted to me, I'm flattered. And if you want to check out more of my stuff, please go to damebaptiste.co.uk for my, all of my gig listings. And I have a web series on my YouTube channel, which is called The A to Z of Blackness, which I did with Little Dot Studios. So check that out. Um, and then also I have a pilot on the BBC iPlayer called Bamus. So please check that out as well. Also, if anyone just wants to hear my voice and not see my face, I have a podcast which is called Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, which is available on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, also available on Acast, the world's biggest podcast network, where you will be hearing Jeff Innocent doing an episode very soon. Dane, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, partly because uh, you've done all the work, and I've just been able to sit back and get to know you, as, uh, as was my intention on getting you onto this. Yeah, thank this. you. It's the real skill is that you, you ask the right questions to get me to open up. I, I tend to not be that uh, verbose with them. Really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that's so. cool. I'm privileged. I'm really privileged. I'm so pleased. Dane Baptiste, ladies and gentlemen, thank, thank you. you very much. Dane Baptiste, thank you. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. This podcast was hosted by me, Jeff Innocent. It was produced and edited by Sam Picconi. Don't forget to like and subscribe and follow me on social media at Jeff Innocent Official on Instagram and Innocent Jeff on Twitter. See you next time for another episode of Smart Casual.